Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. We're looking at verses 17 through 38 this morning. You can find it in page 929, 930, and the Bible's provided in the chairs. I just got to tell you right up front, this is one of my favorite passages, so you might, you might regret that, but I, I love it. Um, if this is your first time with us, or maybe you're back uh, here, you've been gone for the summer, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, you just need to know that we are in part four of a five-part sermon series on what it means to be a Great Commission church. There's all sorts of confusion about how we think about the Great Commission or what the church is called to do, and we want to make sure that we clarify those things. And so in week number one, uh, we looked at the Great Commission itself, and, and we came to the realization that the mission of the church is to make disciples of all nations. So this is not just the job of a few. This is the responsibility of us as a whole. The church, when we think about the Great Commission, we can't separate that from the church. And some of the biggest errors that we see in Christianity today is this idea that you can separate the Great Commission from the church. Because here's the thing. Without the church, there is no Great Commission. And without the Great Commission, there is no church. They go together, okay? In week number two, uh, we explored the importance of prayer to fulfill that mission to make disciples of all nations. And so Kyle showed us from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 that prayer is powerful because Christ is faithful to his mission. And then last week, Caleb reminded us from John chapter 16 that because the Holy Spirit is worked, is at work as we share God's word with others, then we can proclaim the gospel without fear because it's not about us and our abilities and our winsomeness and just having the right formula. This is the Holy Spirit who has, who has inspired and empowered the word. And as we proclaim the word, he works through that proclamation of the world, word to, to enlighten darkened minds and to transform, to bring life to dead hearts. We can have all the confidence in the world, not because of ourselves or because of our slickness or the way that we do things, but because the Holy Spirit is at work in the lives of people. Disciples are made as the Holy Spirit works powerfully through the word, as we commend it to others. And so what we've recognized so far is that God really has given us all that we need to do what he's called us to do. We have everything right here and right now that we need to be faithful to obey the Great Commission. We have the Word, we have prayer, and we have the Holy Spirit. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to build off of all that we've talked about so far by giving us a picture of what the process of discipleship looks like on a day-to-day -day basis. Because we're wildly confused about what discipleship is. Like if I was to go around and I was to ask each of you, tell me, what, what is discipleship? And we would get different answers as far as what that looks like or how we go about doing that. And we're influenced by our cultures. We're influenced by the people that we spend time with or maybe the churches that we've been a part of or the parachurch organizations that we've been a part of. And, and it colors and shapes our understanding of what discipleship is. Discipleship is more than preaching. Discipleship is more than teaching or curriculum or having classes or programs. Discipleship doesn't fit within nice, neat blocks of, uh, in our overpacked schedules. 
we can't look at it as far as time slots go. Discipleship, this process of making disciples, both in our own hearts and in that of others, doesn't happen simply in those intentional, organized, planned moments when the church gathers, but also in the ordinary, everyday moments of life as we go about our business through our days and our weeks and our lives. And so when we think about discipleship, we can't think about programs. We can't think about teaching. We can't think about time slots. Because here's the thing about being a follower of Christ. The disciple's a follower of Christ. At every moment in time, we are following something. Either we are actively following Christ or we are following something else. And as we go about following whatever we're following, we are leading others to do the same thing. We are influencing and impacting everyone else. We are called to be followers of Christ who follow Christ all the time. And when we follow Christ every day, it leads others to do the same. See, discipleship is more than just what we teach. It is how we live. And it happens whether we recognize it or not, day in and day out. And so the best thing that I can do for us this morning is to give us a snapshot, to give us a picture of what day in, day out discipleship looks like. And and I, I think there's no better passage to look at for this than Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. Now, this is the Apostle Paul describing his ministry in and among the church at Ephesus. See, we can't get away from those Ephesians at all. But what I hope we see from our time together is that discipleship is the everyday commitment to faithfulness to Christ. Discipleship is the everyday commitment to faithfulness to Christ. And what I mean by that is that it is continual and it's increasing. It involves both our hearts and that of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It engages believers and unbelievers alike. It involves our whole being, our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and it leads us to act upon our commitments. And it happens as we gather corporately, but also when we are at work or when we are in our homes. It happens when we are strong in the Lord and we feel just joy and happiness and contentment and peace and we're motivated to go out there, but it also happens through trials and tears. But discipleship is the everyday commitment to faithfulness to Christ. And so with that, let's read the text. Acts 20, verses 17 through 38. It says, now from Miletus, he, that is Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value or as precious to myself, if only 
I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now behold, I know that none of, you, none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering For three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now, now I commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands have ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all these things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. There was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Because I hope already you can see why this passage means so much to me. Now you might have picked up from the context. The apostle Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. And he's constrained by the Holy Spirit. He's led. He's directed. He knows that's where he needs to go. He has to go there. And he knows that imprisonment and afflictions await him. And so he wants to say goodbye to these Ephesian elders. He calls them away from Ephesus to come and meet with him. And so these are his parting, final words to them. So this has great weight to it. And now you, he, he wants to remind them of his faithfulness to them and his, he charges them then to be faithful to the call that they've been given, faithful to the position that they've been given as elders. And so you might be thinking, well, Paul is simply telling us about his ministry and he's charging these elders. And so what does this have to do with me? I mean, I'm not an apostle. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a, an evangelist, a pastor or a teacher. So this really is irrelevant to me. What does it have to do with me? Friends, it has a lot to do with you. You may not be a church leader, but as a follower of Christ, you are united to and responsible for other followers of Christ. It's just inherent in what it means to be united in Christ. We've seen this throughout the book of Ephesians. You cannot get away from it. Maybe you're not responsible to the same degree as an elder, but you are nonetheless. And when we think about what a disciple is, a disciple is a follower of a teacher, right? 
And so when we think about a disciple, disciples learn from their teachers. They follow the example of their teachers. They imitate the character of their teachers. They do what their teachers do. And so if your teacher is making disciples, then as a disciple of the teacher, guess what you're doing? You're making disciples. In a word, disciples imitate their teachers. And so if you look closely at Jesus' ministry, then you see that Jesus teaches his disciples so that they might carry on his ministry. On and on and on. Disciples who make disciples who make disciples. If you read through Acts, you see descriptions of how the first followers of Christ imitated Christ's ministry. We have the New Testament itself because these disciples of Christ wanted to inform us. They wanted to teach us. They wanted to help us to be faithful, to be disciples who make disciples of Christ. And the New Testament is filled with this call to imitate. Eleven times that word imitate is used. A couple of examples. Paul says to the church in Corinth, not the leaders, but the church in Corinth. And he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And he doesn't just mean in some areas, he means in all of it. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 7 says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This is a faith that is shared. This is a faith that disciples So you may never be a leader in a church, but the observations that I'm going to draw out of this text from the Apostle Paul's ministry and that charge that he gives to the elders, it applies to every single one of us in terms of day in and day out discipleship. For the simple fact that discipleship is about the imitation of Christ and his ministry in all aspects of our lives. Okay? And so when we look at this text, I'm going to make five observations from this snapshot of Paul's ministry to help us to better understand the true nature of day-in, day-out discipleship in the life of the church. And so the first point that I want to observe from this text is the character of day-in, day-out discipleship. This is the first thing that Paul deals with. He is very, very concerned about living faithfully. Paul wants his life to match his doctrine. He wants his way of living to be consistent with the truth that he believes. And so that's why he deals with this issue of character first thing. Look with me at verses 17 through 19. It says, Now for Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you. The whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Paul reminds them of how he lived faithfully among them. He talks about his integrity. He reminds them of his exemplary character from the very first moment that he stepped foot in Asia for the entirety of the three years that he spent faithfully ministering to them. He showed by example the character of Christ. He wanted them to be able to see Christ through him. As a disciple of Christ, he was above reproach in the way that he lived among them. He showed integrity. He inflected, or reflected the nature and character of Christ to them. And he did this because 
we have to understand that the call to follow Christ is a call to die to ourselves. It's not just, I'm a disciple of Christ if I just make a profession to believe certain truths. And I can do whatever I want. No, it's a call to die to ourselves. We don't serve ourselves or live for ourselves. As he says right there in verse 19, serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We live for him who for our sakes died and was raised. The way that we live our everyday lives is meant to serve the Lord, to display his nature and his character to the world around us. And so to do that, it naturally requires all humility. We can't serve the Lord if we're not humble. We have to humble ourselves in order to serve Christ faithfully. Why? Well, because proud people serve themselves, right? I mean, have you ever been around a proud person? You go, you hang out with a proud person who's just talking about themselves all the time, and you think, you know what? Man, I just love and appreciate and desire to serve Christ more for being around you. Anybody? Only by way of contrast, right? Man, you're a tool. Christ is cool, but you're a tool, right? That's the only way we're going to just kind of point, like be directed and pointed to Christ when we're around someone who's proud. You cannot be proud and serve Christ. Christ himself wasn't proud. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom, as a ransom for many. And so Paul immediately connects the way he lived as a faithful disciple of Christ to the way that he served Christ with all humility. To that he adds, with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Paul lived faithfully for Christ, even in the midst of sorrow and suffering. You have to understand that when you come to Christ, there's no promise that you're going to avoid pain and sorrow. You're not guaranteed your best life now. Not in a physical sense, at least. In fact, following Christ actually guarantees the opposite. I mean, do you remember what Paul said to Timothy? That all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I mean, the reality is we're going to experience more sorrow and more suffering for following Christ, not less, all right? It's not that we can go through life and claim to be a Christian and just avoid pain and sorrow and hardship and difficulty and loss, grief and sadness. There are trials and hardships and weaknesses. And again, I would say we experience more of them than someone who only lives for himself because we are called not to live for ourselves, but for Christ and for his body, right? It's one thing, If all we did was live for ourselves and we just kind of drew this bubble around ourselves and we experienced the natural sorrows and loss and difficulties and pains of life that just come from living for yourself. It's another thing when you've been called to love like Christ loves, to actually open up your heart to then share in the pain and the sorrows and the tears and the hardships and the suffering of others. We're going to endure it more, to weep with those who weep That's exactly what we're called to do as Christians, not just to love and to protect ourselves, but to follow Christ is to love Christ and to love all of those whom Christ loves. And that's going to be hard. That will mean tears and sorrow and grief and pain. That will mean that our hearts at times will be broken. 
But as a faithful disciple of Christ, Paul didn't shy away from that. He was willing to weep and to suffer because Christ wept and suffered for us. And we know that if they hated Christ, if they were willing to persecute Christ, then they will most certainly hate and persecute his followers. And yet we see Paul being faithful, even through the plots of the Jews against him, through mocking, through slander, through beatings, through imprisonment, through eventual death. Paul was faithful to Christ. His character displayed the very nature, the very actions, the very character of Christ to those around him. You see, Paul understood that he had a responsibility to live faithfully, not just for himself, but for the glory of Christ and for the good of his fellow brothers and sisters. He knew that they would be influenced by him, either toward Christ or away from Christ, by the way that he lived. He understood that it is possible And he at many times was heartbroken when many of his friends who had professed Christ with their mouths denied him with their lives. They fell in love with this present world. Paul reminds them and he reminds us that we are accountable to God for the way that we live our lives. That we have the ability to lead and influence others by our words, thoughts, attitudes, and actions, either toward or away from Christ. I mean, just look at our kids. I mean, our kids are going to understand what it means to be a Christian based upon the way that we live our lives. And they're going to see that first and foremost before they ever understand, come to comprehend what it is we're saying. And this is why Paul testifies that he was innocent of the blood of all of them. This is why he admonished everyone with tears. He loved them and he wanted to faithfully display the gospel to them through his life. And so he went to great lengths. He made many sacrifices. He endured much pain so that he would be able to do that. But you know, we not only see Paul's character displayed in how he lived in verses 33 through 35. We also see it in how he labored. And we often kind of disconnect work with our call to be a follower of Christ. And so it's important for us to look at it. In verse 33, he says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all these things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul said, look, I'm not living for material gain. My desire is not for wealth or for the latest fashions. You know how, even though I am an apostle of Christ and I have every right to make demands of you for my own wages, I've taken no advantage of that, but instead I have labored diligently to provide for my own needs and not only for my own needs, but also for those who are with me. You see, I worked harder than them all. I set an example for you in what it means to work hard, to labor for Christ, that you are to follow. And then he goes even one step further than that because he followed the instruction of Christ. You see, Paul didn't labor just to get for himself. Paul labored so that he might give. There's a paradigm shift for you. 
I'm laboring not just to acquire for myself, to make my life more comfortable or more easy, make sure that I've got something to give to my, my children when I pass on, but I labor in such a way that I can give to others, to be a blessing to those who are poor and who are in weak and who are in hardship. He took Christ's words to heart that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And he did that even in the midst of trials and tears and pain and persecution. See, Paul not only displayed the character of day-in, day-out discipleship and how he lived in daily humble service to Christ in the midst of tears and trials, but also in how he labored and what he lived for. And if we were to just take a scan, quick scan, through the letters that Paul wrote to churches, we would see that the character of discipleship that he's talking about here, that we see right here and how we are to live and what we are to labor for is not unique to Paul's position as a leader in the church, but is to characterize the lives of every follower of Christ. We saw this in Ephesians chapter 4. It's there in First and Second Thessalonians, many other places. This is not just taking place on Sunday morning or when we are gathered together with a large group of fellow believers, but in every moment of our daily lives. So the question automatically becomes, does this accurately describe how you live and how you labor? Moment by moment, faithfulness to Christ, desire for integrity and being above reproach, humble service, deep affection for fellow Christians, willingness to endure suffering or hard work, joyful giving? Is this characteristic of what you live for? What Paul is describing here, again, is not unique to Paul in his position. It was meant to describe the life of every follower of Christ. You see, when our character is not there, it really doesn't matter what we preach. When there's a blaring inconsistency, when there's unrepentance towards the way that we're living and when it's not lining up with, with what we, we say that we believe, you know, we profess to believe Christ, but really we're living for the world, it tells a conflicting message about what the gospel is even meant to do, right? It, it tells stories, it tells lies. It, we're professing him with his, our lips, but our hearts are far from him. But when your life does match your doctrine... Or, or when you're growing in that. You haven't arrived yet, but people can clearly see, man, he is changing. He desires to live more and more for Christ. Then at that point, friends, your life bears witness to Christ. It tells the gospel story. It helps people to see who Jesus is. It points them to him. So that's why Paul deals with this first, because people will first look at your life before they ever listen to what you have to say. And so discipleship is the everyday commitment to faithfulness to Christ, and that is displayed first and foremost in our everyday character. Second observation we can get from this passage is the commission of day in, day out discipleship. And again, we see the primary objective of the Great Commission is to make disciples of all nations, and that's coming out in what Paul says next. Read with me verses 20 and 21. It says, You yourselves know how I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable 
and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, Paul puts himself forward as an example in teaching and faithfulness to the Great Commission. Remember the Great Commission, right? I just want to be clear on this, right? There's both the quantitative and the qualitative side of the Great Commission. Jesus came to his disciples. He said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's the primary command. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's the quantitative side. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The qualitative side. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's important to keep in mind. He didn't shrink back in that. Paul was bold. Fear did not overcome him. He wasn't afraid of what people might think or how they might respond. But that doesn't mean that Paul didn't, wasn't ever afraid. All right? He just wasn't overcome by fear. Paul was afraid. He tells the Corinthians that I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He told them in 2 Corinthians that he was despairing at times even of life itself. But that did not keep Paul from declaring anything that is profitable. He withheld nothing profitable. That is profitable in the eyes of God, not in the eyes of man. It's not just what you want to hear. No one wants to hear that they're a sinner condemned under God's wrath. No one wants to hear that, but it's profitable to hear that, right? It's a means of spiritual gain, not earthly gain. And I love what he says right there in verse 20. Look, look at verse 20. What he says next is so important. He says, I taught faithfully for 30 minutes every Sunday, whether you are here or not. No. He said, teaching you in public and from house to house. We see that the word was being taught and proclaimed day in and day out. Not just on those hour or two time slots where we're sitting in a nice cozy air-conditioned building and but in public and in private, in large gatherings and from house to house, not just on Sunday mornings, but every single day of the week. And it's important to kind of identify here that that requires not only faithfulness on his part to teach in public and from house to house, but it would have also required their willingness, their desire, their devotion to his teaching. All right, you can't get the image here that Paul is like chasing them around and trying to just get into their house by walking through the doggy door so he can make these home visits. That's not what's happening here, right? He is able to do that, to preach in public and from house to house because they want to hear his message and learn more. They were committed and devoted to hearing and learning more of Christ. It's reciprocal here. Not just the responsibility of the pastor or the leadership, but also of those who would hear. Verse 21 says that he testified both to Jews and to Greeks. He's preaching the gospel, making disciples of the nations without partiality. Of repentance toward God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's proclaiming the gospel to them. That message that the one true and holy God who made us and who sustains our lives loves us despite the fact that we have rejected him, despite the fact that we have rebelled against him. And he's proven that because he sent his one and only son to live a perfect life of obedience to God, life that you and I could never live. And Christ gave up that life, 
by dying as a ransom for sin. He rose again three days later so that we might know that God's wrath against sin has been satisfied and he offers us the hope of a new, resurrected, and eternal life with God forever if we would repent. That is, turn away from our sin and turn to Christ in faith. That's the message that he is proclaiming. And that's not just a message for the Ephesians 2,000 years ago. That's the message that we so desperately need to hear. We need to hear it over and over and over again to be reminded of who we now are in Christ. We need to be reminded of it over and over and over again so that it might be ready and on our lips so that we might declare it to others. So that message is one that we need to respond to. Turn away from your sin and receive the free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, that's the commission of day-in, day-out discipleship. Now notice that what we see Paul doing here in verses 21, 20 and 21 are primary, primarily evangelistic ministry. It's not that it wasn't, but it's evangelistic. And that's the responsibility, not just of officials in ministry positions, but what he's describing here is Christ's commission to the church. This is the church's responsibility. He's speaking of there, what he's speaking of there in verses 20 and 21 is primarily taking the gospel to those who do not know Christ. It's the quantitative side of the Great Commission. It is proclaiming the gospel uh, so that others might repent and believe and be added to the church, being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The description that he gives of his ministry in verses 24 through 35 is more of the qualitative side of the Great Commission. He's teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. This is the aspect of discipleship that helps one another to reach maturity in Christ. To become like Christ. And not just as individuals, but as a whole. And so, verse 24, he testified to the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 25, he proclaimed the kingdom. Verse 27, he did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. Verses 28 through 30 are this warning against false teachers within the church. Verse 31, night and day he admonished everyone with tears. Verse 32, he commended them to God and to the word of his grace. Verse 35, he reminded them of the words of Christ. Friends, what we see Paul doing here is living out the Great Commission. And he's charging these elders to do the same. To make mature disciples of Christ who would then be able to turn and make disciples of Christ who would then turn and make disciples of Christ and on and on and on and on and on it goes until it crosses the globe and it sits right here before us today facing the same call to share the gospel to teach people of the need to repent and believe, to baptize them into the name of of God and to teach them to reach maturity in Christ. Disciples, making disciples, making disciples to the end of the age. This is the primary activity of Paul's ministry, to make disciples who grow to maturity in Christ. And we've already seen that it is our ministry and that it takes a church to carry out Christ's great commission. But what I hope stands out to you from Paul's description of his ministry is how it does not fit within nice, orderly blocks of time, but moment by moment, day by day, in public and in private, corporately and individually, 
We are called to carry out this mission, not just on Sundays when we gather together, but in our community groups, and not even when we gather as a community group on a particular time and day of the week, but we develop relationships so that we can have ongoing conversations and speak Christ to one another and point one another to Christ. We do this in LTGs, not just in days of the week, but so that we might care for one another's souls and help one another to grow in Christ's likeness. We do this as we counsel one another. We do this as we share with one another just in casual conversations about what we're learning. We do this as we meet together in one another's homes to share a meal. This is what we do when we instruct and discipline our kids. This is what we do when we go and we preach the gospel in our workplaces, in our classrooms, in our neighborhoods. You must understand that this call to make disciples of all nations is a church-wide 24-7 ministry. You may not be an apostle like Paul, but you have a part to play every single day. This commission that the church has been given to make disciples is an everyday commitment to faithfully share and point others toward maturity in Christ. This has to change the way we think about discipleship. So, we've seen the importance of the character and the commission of day-in, day-out discipleship. Third, let's observe the crown of day-in, day-out discipleship. You see, here's the thing. Every minute of every day, we are moving closer to death, closer to judgment, closer to to what will be our eternal state before the holy God who made us and sustains us and who gave his son so that we might be eternally reconciled to God. And so what we do here and now from every moment of our lives now has eternal significance because we are moving toward that day. Those things that we do that are built upon Christ, that are for his glory or so that we and others might find our joy in Christ those are considered by God as gold and silver and precious jewels. But those things that we do that are built upon ourselves, that are for our own glory, or so that we can find our joy in this life only, in a moment, as wood, hay, and straw will be burned up. Guys, think about your lives for just a minute. Think about what you are pursuing and what you're living for. Think about all of your labors, all of your efforts. What is it you're trying to achieve with your life? What's the purpose? What's the function? I mean, when you look at your calendar, when you look at your bank account, what is it that you're living for? All of your life's achievements, your wealth, your degrees, your position, your comforts, your conquests, in a moment... As you stand before the Lord, they will come to nothing. Absolutely nothing. I love the illustration that John Piper makes in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. I commend that book to you. He said, the American dream is a tragedy. When you come to the end of your one and only precious God-given life, and you stand before your creator. What are you going to boast in? See, Lord, look at my seashells. 
See, Lord, look at my home. Look at my family. Look at my entertainment system. Look at all of my degrees and accomplishments. It's a tragedy. There is so much more to live for than anything that we can gain from this life. And Paul understood that, which is why he says in verses 22 through 24, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. I do not count my life of any value or precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Here we see Paul and he's constrained by the Spirit. The Spirit is leading and directing him to go to Jerusalem and he has to go. He's got to go. He doesn't know what it means for them except that imprisonment and affliction awaits him. And when you look at that, you're just like, "What? are you out of your mind, Paul? What are you doing? You're, you're going headlong into pain and suffering. Do you know what this means? And, and we're not the only ones to think this because we see this is exactly what happens to the church. You know, you got Agabus and he's standing up there with a belt, you know, and he's tying himself up. This is what's going to happen to you, Paul. Stop it. You know, but he goes on, and, and how is it that Paul can go on? How is it that Paul can go towards that end of hardship and suffering? How could he embrace it? I mean, is the constraint of the Holy Spirit that he's experiencing there just like far more than anything that we have experienced? I mean, is he just kind of being pulled and gravitated towards it? He's just like, wait, well, here I go. No, because we know that the Holy Spirit works through revelation, not compulsion. Keep that in mind, guys, when you think about sanctification, okay? What I mean by that is the way that we see the Holy Spirit working is that he reveals truth to us over and over and over again. And then we actively respond to that revelation that we've received. It's not that the Holy Spirit is just going to pluck you up and just put you down over there. We would love for that to be the case, especially when we're fighting against sin, but that's not the way it works. And so I don't think that this constraint of the Holy Spirit that he's receiving is just somehow unique to us. I mean, I'm not going to discount the fact, I mean, like he had a pretty unbelievable conversion experience, right? I mean, the resurrected Lord Jesus did appear to him and tell him how much he would suffer for the sake of Christ. But again, that was revelation. That's not compulsion. All right? But I think that we have a better answer, well, let me just say this too. Here's here's just a word of advice in that. The more time that we spend in the word and prayer, and we know that Paul spent a lot of time in the word and prayer. He prayed without ceasing, right? The more sensitive we are to the Spirit's leading, and Paul is an example of us, to us in that, okay? Now, I think what is more telling here is what we read there in verse 24, as far as knowing why Paul is going to the end that he's going toward. It says, I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, Paul is not self-depreciating or suicidal. He's not struggling with low self-esteem here. Paul, the reason why Paul can move towards this end of imprisonment and affliction is because he understands the greatness of the glory of Christ. He understands that Christ is far better. 
We see him saying something very similar in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. He's in prison now at this time that he wrote this. He's living out that prediction, that promise that the Holy Spirit gave to him. And he said, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See, the reason why Paul can do what he's doing right there is because he understands the incomparable worth of Christ. He understands what is most precious. He understands that Christ is far greater than any and all that this world has to offer. And so he's willing to endure suffering and the loss of all things so that he can faithfully finish his course and the ministry that he has received from the Lord. His one desire is to gain that which is most precious, to receive that unfading crown. And if we were to continue reading in Philippians chapter 3, we would see that he calls all believers in Philippi to think this same way and to imitate him so that they might share in the same crown. See, Paul's chief end, the crown that he is pursuing, is to faithfully fulfill his ministry so that he might gain Christ. And he knows that he is accountable to God for his fellow brothers and sisters, which is why he says in verses 25 through 27, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Because do you see the depth of love and concern that Paul has for these believers? Do you see how important it was for him to be faithful to God's word and to be innocent of the blood of all of them? He knew that he was responsible for his life and for his witness to them. He knew that he was responsible for declaring the whole counsel of God. But Paul has proven himself to be a faithful watchman. Now I wonder, do you, when you look around this room, do you concern yourself at all with the discipleship of those next to you, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you feel a shared burden and responsibility for their souls as we were meant to. See, all of us as a church were meant, we're called to keep the church pure. We are to love and care for each other. We are to maintain the unity that we have from the Holy Spirit in the bond of peace. And you may not be a pastor But as a member of this church, you have covenanted together to share in the responsibility for one another's discipleship, to care and love one another. God has gifted each one of us, and he has united us together for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the maturity of the faith and the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is Ephesians chapter 4. All of us have that responsibility. You have a part to play. Whether you will be held responsible, and you will be held responsible if you fail to finish the course that you have been given. Friends, don't think that you can live for Christ and live for yourself. Don't think 
that you can live for this world and go through life free from the burden of loving and caring for the souls of others. Set your minds on the prize that day, of day in and day out discipleship. Look to where we are going. Look forward to the reward. And pursue that today. And so we've observed the character, the commission, and the crown of day in, day out discipleship. Don't worry, these are all getting shorter, I know, I know. But guys, I'm challenging. Remember what I said from verse 20? In public and from house to house. Loving, devoting, committed to the word. This is too good to pass up though, so I'm sorry. I try to keep the three points, but this time I had five. Um, so we've observed character commission, the crown of day in, day out discipleship. Next, number four, is the concern of day in, day out discipleship. In verses 28 through 32 there, they really serve to put all of those first three observations together and show what our everyday care and concern for each other is to be directed and focused upon. All right. We have this responsibility to attend to, to care for, to protect and shepherd the flock of God that we are a part of. So let's look at verses 28 through 31. It says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of God in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. Now, guys, remember that first and foremost, Paul is speaking to the elders of the church in Ephesus, and he says that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for, that is, pastor the flock that you have this responsibility for. So elder, overseer, pastor, one office right there. And he tells them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Though Christ has obtained you and this church with his own blood, that doesn't mean that we don't need shepherding or that we don't need the church. There's a reason why we see this analogy of sheep and flocks and shepherd come up over and over and over again in scripture because sheep wander. Sheep need to be shepherded. And so these shepherds must keep watch over them diligently. But in the church of God, shepherds are also sheep. Which means that they too can drift away from the truth and become lost in error and sin. And so shepherds need shepherding too. Therefore, we need each other. Paul is concerned about the attentiveness and care for his this flock, and he wants to make sure that they faithfully shepherd and protect this church. And he knows that after he leaves, fierce wolves will come in and they will devour the flock, even from among them. People will rise up and speak twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And here's the kicker, guys. We know that this is true because if you read Revelation, John tells well, the angel tells John to tell the church in Ephesus, you have lost your first love. There they are 30, 40 years later, and already this is having its effect. 
And here's the thing, guys, about, about these false teachers. No one knows that they are at first. Right? Many times, false teachers don't even know that they're false teachers. In fact, most of the time, they would argue that they're not. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. It's not like they are going to march in the church one day and say, listen up, I'm a wolf. And that they're going to say and preach and declare things that are so off the wall that it's just kind of obvious that this is not true. No, they come in. They become a part of the church. Maybe they've been a part of the church for a really, really, really long time. And they, maybe they're in leadership there and they slowly and almost imperceptibly drift away from the gospel. What they do is just subtly twist, subtly distort, subtly put the emphasis on something other than Christ and his intention for the church. Maybe they minimize things. Maybe they magnify things that they shouldn't, but it just gets off kilter and it leads others away. And they can know a lot of scripture. And more often than not, they're not outright denying Christ. More often what we see is, is like what we see in Jude, the, the guys that Jude is dealing with. Right? In the book of Jude, he says that they have crept in unnoticed, but who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord into sensuality. So what these guys are doing is basically saying, sin so that grace may abound. It's all right. Jesus has covered your sin. It doesn't really matter whether or not you obey. It doesn't matter how you live. You can just do whatever you want. Join a church, don't join a church. You know, sleep around, don't sleep around. Drink, don't drink. It doesn't really matter. All All sorts of immorality is what they're doing. And what he then follows up and says, and they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, they're not outright denying that Jesus is Lord. But their lives prove that Jesus is not their Lord. That's what's happening. And so he, Jude calls, not the elders, not just the elders, but the whole church to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And this is why Paul for three years has admonished and pleaded with everyone in tears. He's calling them back to the truth over and over and over and over and over again. Friends, we we can't say that doctrine doesn't matter. We can't say that it's just kind of optional. We can't assume upon the truth and have little concern for doctrine. That has led many, many, many Christians and many, many, many churches within our community and with our state and within our country and throughout the world away from the gospel. This is a real and present danger. We can't just assume that it doesn't matter. We can't say that truth and doctrine is irrelevant. And every one of us has the potential to be a wolf, according to this passage. Every single one of us. So we must be alert, lest we allow ourselves or others to twist the truth and to draw away disciples after us. Friends, this happens so often in churches, but... Most are ignorant or assuming, and they can't even see 
what's happening until it's too late. So we all have a responsibility to protect the flock, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So we cannot, we don't have the luxury to remain in ignorance lest you lead or are led astray. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock. But in addition to this warning, Paul gives us the blessing of verse 32. And I commend to you, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So what Paul is doing here is he's entrusting them to God and to the word of his grace. And as they are faithful to accept and obey God's word, they will grow in size and maturity. They will be protected from division and from error. They will grow and be built up in love and in unity and in faithfulness to God. And in the end, they will receive the glorious eternal inheritance for all of those who have been set apart by God for salvation. And so... How do we participate in this concern and care for the flock day in and day out? Well, friends, in our lives and as a church, we have to keep the word of grace central. Always before us. We know the word of grace. Accept the word of grace. Love the word of grace. Admonish one another according to the word of grace. Teach the word of grace. Build one another up in the word of grace. This is how we are to respond. This is how we show care and concern for the flock and protect ourselves from wolves. Now we can, we can stop right there. I mean, we've seen the character, the commission, the crown, and the concern of day-in, day-out discipleship. But we would... It would be lacking if we just, we would miss the effect, really, of day-in, day-out discipleship if we didn't pay attention to what comes next. And so we need to look at this, this quick little picture that we see there in verses 36 through 38, this fifth observation, the communion of day-in, day-out discipleship. Friends, Paul's feelings for the Ephesians was not one-sided. This was not a one-sided relationship. Paul was not the only one to deeply love and care for others. We see there in verses 36 through 38, this heartfelt communion and mutual affection of discipleship. And he says, when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Now it is clear from this text that they loved each other. I mean, you could see it in the way that Paul prays for them. You could see it in the way that they wept their tears as they publicly displayed their affection for one another. You see it even in the way that they stayed with Paul and accompanied him to the ship. Friends, this is what happens when we embrace God's design for discipleship. This is what happens when we get rid of the notion that discipleship only happens at particular times and particular days. This is what happens when we realize that discipleship is more than the optional transfer of information. 
but is the repeated and continual proclamation of the word of God by the church day in and day out for the ongoing transformation and maturity of all of our hearts. This is what happens when we commit ourselves to God's word and his design for the church. And we seek to commit ourselves to reflecting and living out that truth. This is what happens when we stop leaving the burden of discipleship to the professionals. But instead we take personal responsibility for the care and the growth of one another's souls. Because what we see here is a culture of discipleship. True communion. True love. True fellowship. True unity. True faithfulness. A congregation covenanted under God, committed to the growth of one another. This is what God means for the church to look like. This is what it means for us to carry out the Great Commission. This is the, and this ought to change the way we think about discipleship. Right? This ought to change the way we think about our lives. This ought to change the way we think about how we even go about approaching the Great Commission. This ought to change the way we think about the church. And friends, when I read this, I, I want this so much. I have given my life for this. And I pray that when you read it, you want it too. And that we might pursue this together. Discipleship is the everyday commitment to faithfulness to Christ. Everyday faithfulness in character, in our own lives that displays the gospel. Everyday faithfulness to the commission that we've been given to proclaim God's word to others. Everyday faithfulness to pursue that future crown that awaits us in glory. Everyday faithfulness to show true care and true concern for the souls of one another. And everyday faithfulness to pursue true communion as a church. Friends, let's pray together and ask God to help us to be and to make mature disciples of Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we have your word. That you have told us so many different ways, so many times and so many places what it means to be a follower of Christ. We've got to pray for our church that we would think differently about our own lives, about what it means to be a disciple and what it means to participate in the process of discipleship of each other. Pray that this would help us to see that every moment of every day is an opportunity to be a more faithful disciple, to make mature disciples. I pray that we would see that there's nothing inconsequential or insignificant, that there's not any part of our lives that we can just push aside and say, well, that doesn't matter as long as I do this once or twice a week. And I pray that this would draw us together in love and commitment to one another 
That we wouldn't sit back on our heels as consumers only to take, 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 take. But that we would deeply care and love for one another and commit ourselves in whatever way that you have gifted us and enabled us to serve and to build up the body of Christ. God, we thank you that even when we are faithless, you are faithful. And that we can move forward in repentance and faith and in confidence knowing that you are at work through your word, that your Holy Spirit is doing what we cannot, and that this is Christ's mission and he cares far more about it than any one of us ever could. We are just participating with him in that. It's in his name we pray.